All right, we are, uh, we're, we're finishing up this series on 24, the day that changed history. And uh, some sad news came across the wires this week. Some of you are already aware that, uh, that Fox has decided that this will be the last season of 24. Some of you are like, you want to applaud? Yeah. So. But I'm like broken hearted. This will be the last season of Jack Bauer confronting terrorists and nuclear threats and uh, double agents. I mean, what am I going to do on Monday nights, 9 to 10? This has been, you know, I'm going to miss you, Jack. <laughs> the world's going to miss Jack. <laughs> Just you wait and see, Fox. <laughs> I'm holding them responsible. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's moving on, that's okay. Maybe going to the big screen. So there is some hope uh, left for us. A 24 hour movie. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, thankfully, uh, though this hero is riding off into the sunset, there is another real life hero who is not going anywhere. He's a... Uh, been around from the beginning of time and he'll be here forever. Some people call him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I'm talking about Jesus. He is the hero that we worship, that we trust in, that we look to, that we adore, that we give our lives to, and uh, he's the hero that's worth talking about here this morning. So we're looking at this last day of Jesus's life. This week during Holy Week and our Thursday and Friday services, we'll kind of put this, this day under the microscope even more, but in the last few weeks we've been kind of looking at it with broad strokes and, uh, and just kind of venturing with Jesus and his disciples through these final hours. And so a couple weeks ago we went with them to the upper room and, and we, we listened to just how much Jesus wants to have fellowship with people like you and me. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to engage in, in our lives with us. And how thankful we are for that. We learned about the, felt, the, the faithfulness of God and in, in the giving of his son and the broken body and the shed blood and, and, and the invitation that we have in return to be faithful to him. And then last week we went with Jesus to the Mount of Olives and to the, the Garden of Decision. Remember, and we watched and we learned from Jesus as he wrestled with his calling, but then we we, we, we ultimately rejoiced with him, and, and hopefully even this week we've been praying along with him in that simple prayer that he came to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Has anybody had a chance to pray that prayer even this week? Not my will, but yours be done. Be on the lookout for opportunities, if not this past week, that you will have uh, in weeks to come. And so this week we're going to wrap up this little series, and we're going to look at uh, this section of scripture where we see Jesus coming into, into captivity and in, in, in his conversation with his captors and, and, and those who stood in judgment with, uh, above him. And so we're going to look at it from Luke chapter 23. And if you have a Bible or you can get your hands on one somewhere, I'd love to invite you to, to turn there. Luke chapter 23, uh, verses 1 through 25. We looked at this story actually in the adult Bible study this morning from the Gospel of John. So we'll see some of the similarities and some of the, uh, the differences, perhaps, in these two accounts of this crucial scene, uh, not only in Jesus' life, but in, in, in all of history. Would you stand with me? I want to just read this for us. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. Luke chapter 23, 
verse, beginning at verse 1 through 25. A little bit of background that I'm skipping over. Jesus had already been brought in to the religious leaders. They had uh, quizzed him as to his identity. He had admitted or verified their statement that he was the Son of God. And so now they uh, felt like they needed no more proof and were whisking him off to the Roman authorities. So verse 1 of 23, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Remember that it was on Palm Sunday that the, the crowds yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and uh, because of our series, we're, we're not focusing on that day as much this morning. But it was that same crowd who perhaps didn't understand fully what they were saying or perhaps were meaning, Lord, save us in a different way, maybe a physical saving, a, a political overthrow, who now, because of his uh, Jesus' inability or... or, or his different direction, we're now yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What a scene this is. I'm simply calling this scene the trial of the centuries. There have been, been many trials that have 
uh, garnered the, the nickname, the trial of the century, which is interesting. Uh, it seemed like there could only be one trial of the century, but there were several, at least in the 20th century, uh, that, that garnered that nickname. But none throughout the centuries has held such significance for all of humanity and for all of history than this particular trial that took place uh, with Jesus. It literally and truly is, was and is the, the trial of the centuries. And it continues to have its impact on us, obviously, today, and it will into the future. It was a packed courtroom. We can imagine and envision scenes that we have uh, either been a part of in, in courtrooms or that we've seen on television. And we can imagine the courtroom and all the characters that were present there. There was the defendant, Jesus. This, uh, this one who was the accused, this one who, who was having many things said about him uh, that were uh, not necessarily true. They said that he had subverted the nation when in reality he had never led people against Roman rule. Uh, they said that he had tried to get people not to pay their taxes to Caesar, and yet we remember that he said to his followers, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? And then they accuse him of claiming to be the Christ, a king. And technically, they had him on this one, right? Because he had claimed to be the king. And yet, his understanding of kingship would be so much different than what the Romans would have understood kingship to be all about. Well, what Jesus, the crimes that he was really uh, guilty of, or what? The, the crimes of of loving the, the broken, of preaching the good news of the kingdom, of healing the sick, of caring for the poor and the oppressed. And yet here he was, here he was standing accused. And, and, and in this scene in Luke, it's really interesting because this defendant only says six words. And we would, we would almost hope that, that he would defend himself a little bit more. I almost hope that he would have a few more things to say. And yet he doesn't. He stands there, really, allowing the things that are happening in this scene to continue to happen. Uh, some suggest that, that Jesus was on such a mission for the cross. His purpose was clear. He was moving forward, that any defense was unnecessary and just almost trivial. Others suggest that by the, the way that he carried himself in these moments, he was evoking uh, thoughts of the suffering servant from the, the book of Isaiah that had been prophesied about so many hundreds of years before. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. That's not easy to say. So he did not open his mouth. Doesn't this sound like Jesus here in this scene that we've just read? So we have the defendant, first of all. And then there's the accusers, the Jewish leaders that, uh, that, that here are spoken of as the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're pushing for Jesus to be executed. They were undoubtedly feeling threatened by this Jesus and what he was doing to upset the entire religious establishment. Um, they were intent and determined and focused on seeing Jesus die. The, the claim that he had made to be the son of God had undoubtedly thrown this you know, over the top for them. And so uh, while they didn't have the authority in that uh, situation to sentence someone to death, the, only the Roman authorities had that. They were then willing to make up accusations. They were willing to do whatever it took. 
ironically, these religious leaders, to see this man put to death. Uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish leaders. Then there's a couple of other folks, interestingly, kind of side, side notes maybe to the scene. But one is Herod. We, we noticed him here. Um, and, and he's the Jewish ruler who also happened to be in town and, and here part of this, this uh, scene. He had jurisdiction over Jesus because Jesus was from Galilee, as we learned. But he's not a very impressive or important figure in this, in this scene. He's really someone who just, again, kind of falls into the line of, of someone who rejected Jesus, someone who didn't take him seriously, someone who contributed to the path that Jesus would walk towards the cross. He was someone who treated Jesus more like a circus animal, just wanting to see him do the tricks. And, and when that didn't come through, he, he, he rejected him and ridiculed him. And another who failed to recognize who Jesus was. And then there's this Barabbas character, just quickly to mention him, because he is obviously significant in the scene. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a terrorist, essentially. And uh, he was being held by the Romans for their for his crimes against their empire, and yet uh, there was a, a tradition or a, a practice that, that the Romans would, would release one Jewish prisoner, maybe to appease the, the masses and the mobs in those days, and so uh, the crowd calls out his name, this, this murderer, this terrorist, instead of the name of Jesus, when they're asked who they would prefer. And isn't it ironic, and, and we perhaps shouldn't Miss this right from the start that how, 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 how this criminal, this sinner would go free while the innocent one would die in his place. A picture, a portrait of things that were and are to come. Barabbas. Then that leads us to this final character of interest that uh, I want to just spend a couple more moments with this morning. Uh, this, uh, this Roman governor, the one sitting in the seat of judgment, perhaps the, uh, the baddest bad guy in all of the Bible, and of course I'm talking about Pontius Pilate. Uh, in fact, he was probably a pretty bad guy. Uh, sources, historical sources, both inside Scripture and outside, speak of him as being a pretty, a pretty rough man. Uh, Luke 13.1 tells us that Pilate had squashed a, a rebellion of the Jews and mixed their blood with their sacrifices. That sounds pretty brutal, doesn't it? I mean, not a nice man. There, there's another uh, extra-biblical kind of a historical document from that time that described him this way. He was a man of inflexible disposition, harsh and stubborn. And it's kind of what we see Pilate emerging even in this story. And yet I have to say, and I'm not sure how you reacted perhaps as you heard the story or read it uh, again this morning, but I have to say as I listen to the story again and listen to the description of Pilate, that he doesn't quite come off as the bad guy that I remember him to be. doesn't quite come off as being, he's bad, but he's not perhaps as bad as maybe he has been made out to be in our minds and throughout history. That perhaps, only perhaps, he doesn't deserve quite the terrible reputation that he has earned uh, over the centuries, uh, from this story at least. The reality is that I kind of began to think of him in some different ways as I read the story, that instead of terrible, he comes across as somewhat, somewhat timid, 
that, that instead of being this confident leader, he, he really comes across as being quite confused by this whole scene that's uh, developing before him. And instead of intimidating, he comes across as, as quite insecure. I counted at least four times, and maybe you can see more in this little section of Scripture from, from the Gospel of Luke, at least four times where, where Pilate declares for people to hear out loud that he found no basis for the charges that they were bringing against Jesus. And yet at least that many times, he fails to, to follow through on, on that statement and to release Jesus. Now, I don't know how this always works in the courtroom setting. I, I actually happened to do a little bit of research this week. I was uh, flipping up to March Madness and uh, landed on Judge Judy. And um, from the research that I did in those few moments, that when a judge uh, announces a verdict, typically they bang that gavel and they go on out. Maybe this is a little bit of people's court too, but they go on out to get you know, interviewed by the guy. I mean, it's the gavel, the judgment, it's done. And yet, here's Pilate. The judgment, I find no basis. Oh, let's keep talking about it. Let's keep discussing this. And over and over, it's the, it's the factor that stood out more than anything in this section of Scripture that, that we find Pilate acting in this, in this way. Um, in a word, Pilate comes across as indifferent. Now, I'm not sure if indifferent captures everything about Pilate in this passage or, or even beyond, but I think it begins to get at who he was. Indifference simply means uh, this. Indifference, a lack of feeling for or against something. And in fact, this is kind of where we find Pilate, right? Kind of in this murky middle ground, kind of riding this fence of indecision, kind of Oh, you know, one foot in, one foot out, kind of not necessarily against Jesus, but for sure not necessarily for him either. Indifferent. And this indifference, as we discover, led to all sorts of problems. Now, as I thought about Pilate and his example, I began to obviously think about us. It seems to me, as tragic as it may be, that his response to Jesus was not too unlike that of many people still today. Even people who call themselves followers of Jesus. We would never want to see ourselves or imagine ourselves in the, in the shoes of Pilate. And I'm not necessarily going to put us there uh, completely. But how many of us would have to admit that uh, we often uh, ourselves live with indifference towards Jesus. I mean, we're not against him by any means. Uh, we're not against him. We do not oppose him. I mean, we come to church. We do all these kinds of things. We, we do not, you know, hold picket signs against Jesus by any means. We are not against him by any means, but we're not really for him either, at least in ways that are of real significance. We're indifferent towards Jesus. 
more often than we would like to admit, neither really against or for him. And this indifference, just like it did for Pilate and that situation at that point, is, is, is paving the way towards all sorts of problems for ourselves and for the church. One of the ways this plays itself out is this, is that indifference keeps us from taking responsibility. When we're indifferent to Jesus, we, we can just kind of avoid taking responsibility. Uh, for Pilate, it was like this. Remember, as soon as, in that scripture, as soon as he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he was like, Galilee? I believe that there's someone else, even here in town, who is the ruler over Galilee and has jurisdiction. And so let's send this Jesus off to him, off to Herod. And right in these moments, it's as if Pilate is trying to pass the buck of responsibility. He's, he's neither for nor against, so let me just take this opportunity to, to, to shove off the responsibility and let somebody else make this decision. Let me just avoid this issue altogether, in a sense, Pilate seems to be saying. Let me take the safe route here and, and just pass the buck to somebody else. And it made me wonder if, if we do not, from time to time, again, allow our indifference toward Jesus to keep us from taking responsibility for how we are going to deal with Jesus in our lives. If we're neither really for him or against him, then we can just kind of avoid the issue altogether and really kind of put off deciding how significant of a role Jesus will play in our lives, ultimately and fundamentally. And while for some of us this may seem like kind of the safe route to play is it is, in fact, very dangerous. It kind of reminds me of when I was growing up as a kid in the Bay Area. Uh, there, there are two baseball teams. Again, spring is in the air, and so is baseball. But there are two baseball teams in the Bay Area of uh, Northern California, the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. You're, you're maybe familiar with this. And when I was growing up in high school, there was a, there was a hat in circulation. And don't, don't put it up there yet, because the one I have, oh, there, oh, there it is. The one I'm going to show you is not actually the hat. Go ahead and show it, Robin. But has anybody seen anything funny about this hat, you baseball fans? Yeah, it's... There you go. It's the color of the Oakland A's, but it has the San Francisco emblem on it. Now, leave that up there. But when I was in high, I, I looked high and low for the picture that I really wanted to show you. Because when I was in high school, I, they didn't have this one, but they had another one that was, it was literally uh, half black and orange with the San Francisco and half green and gold with the big A. And uh, it was just a way, basically, and, and this is kind of maybe an upgrade of that. Um, but it was basically just a way for someone who lived in the Bay Area to basically declare that I'm, what, indifferent. I'm neither for nor against either of these two teams, which, interestingly, would never play like in New York or Chicago or some of these other places where there are two baseball teams. I mean, you couldn't get away with wearing a, a hat with half Mets and half Yankees, no way. But um, this is just a way to, to, to say that I'm indifferent. And, and what happens when you're able to wear a hat like this or like the one that I described? Well, you never really fully commit 
You never really have to take responsibility for what team you're cheering for. And so what can you do? Well, whoever wins, that's who I'm cheering for. Yeah, if the Giants win, it's the SF that you uh, highlight. If it's the A's, then it's the green and gold. Well, I think this is so much the case for us. When we, when we are indifferent, when we slide into, I don't think any of us intentionally you know, set out each day that I'm going to be indifferent to Jesus today. But when we slide into this, we're neither against him, but not necessarily for him, then we're freed from the responsibility of really choosing uh, and deciding who it is that we're following, who it is that we're giving our life to, who it is that has ultimate authority in our lives. And, and so what that does is it frees us up to whatever the circumstances may be to kind of move in that direction or kind of go with that flow. And again, this maybe sounds like kind of a safe route to us, but it is it is dangerous. Listen to this quote from John Wesley that we read from time to time in the covenant service. Listen to what John Wesley said about this kind of thing. Read this with me, would you? Do not delay in this matter. If you are unresolved, you are already resolved. If you remain undecided for Christ, you are already decided for the devil. Indifference keeps us from taking responsibility. Second idea is this, that indifference uh, leaves the door open for disobedience. Indifference leaves the door open for, for disobedience. Again, for Pilate in this scene, he had said over and over that he found no basis for the charges of Jesus, against Jesus. And yet it's clear by his waffling on the matter that he had never fully decided on the subject in, in his heart. He had given great lip service, obviously, to Jesus' innocence, but his, his going back and forth, again, just demonstrates that he remained indifferent, that he was susceptible, susceptible to changing his mind. And so when the people cry out, give us Barabbas, he's like, oh, well, that's an option. Maybe we'll go that direction. He had given lip service to the fact that Jesus was the one to be set free. But when another option comes his way, though he would debate with them a little bit about this, and though this one they were calling for would, would not just be kind of a mild-mannered prisoner, but a murderer, an insurrectionist, a terrorist, even in those moments, Pilate decides, because he is indifferent, to throw moral and ethical uh, caution to the wind and go with this second option. Because he was indifferent, he had left open this option, left open the door to going in a, in a different direction. This is so uh, dangerous for us. How often do we leave ourselves an open door for disobedience? How often do we leave ourselves a, a, a little bit of an out when we are indifferent to Jesus, when we're, again, not against him, but not necessarily for him, how easy it us, is it for us to find ourselves being open to all sorts of options that may come our way? We haven't really settled the question. We're still open for options. I, I, this used to happen and still happens to me sometimes when I'll invite 
people to a, a function or just to, to my house or you know the teens will be going on a trip or something else you know some and and one of the questions that we'll ask you know is well would you would you, you want to come on this or come over for this and, and a lot of times people more and more it seems like in our day are a little bit well they like to leave themselves an out or an option so instead of just responding and don't worry you've, i'm sure you've done this and i've done this too but instead of responding yes i'll be there or no i can't do that we say things like well who's going to be there <laughs> and every time someone says that to me i just want to say i'm going to be there isn't it enough isn't it enough for you uh, which obviously it isn't if they were asking that question. Uh, you know, who's going to be there? Or how much does it cost? Or, uh, you know, how are, we, how are we going? I mean, there's all sorts of questions that, that people kind of throw back as opposed to just answering because why? Because I believe it's because we want to leave ourselves an out. Because maybe... When it comes down to it, we might get a better option. We might get a better offer, and we want to be able to kind of go back and say, well, I just couldn't do it because of this, because of that. We like to leave this option for ourselves. And I think uh, this happens just too often in terms of our relationship with God. Too, too often when we remain indifferent, when we, we find ourselves in this, this, this gray area, this fuzzy fence of indecision, like I said, where we're... We're not against him, but we're not necessarily for him. And so we're in this place, and we're, we're maybe walking with him. We're open to what he has for us. And yet, if another option comes along, then we're open, like Pilate was, to maybe weighing it into the balance. And actually, maybe this sounds more fun. Actually, this sounds like it will be more enjoyable. Actually, this disobedience sounds like it, it is the better thing for me at this moment. When, when in reality, in our hearts, we know it isn't. But since we left ourselves open for that disobedience, how easy it is for us not only to be open to it, but then to step right into it. And it's that slippery slope that is so, so dangerous. Indifference leaves the door open for disobedience. Have you been there? Last thought's this from life of Pilate and his example, and it's simply this idea that indifference makes us vulnerable to the influence of others. And we can obviously, I mean, this is what we all know about Pilate, right? That in the end, it was the voices crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And you heard in the scripture, that verse, verse 23, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. Since he was neither for or against, since he was in this place of indifference, it was ultimately not his voice that would make the decision. It was the voices of others around him and their influence upon him that would make this, this decision how often this happens to us. Just a kind of silly example kind of maybe take the heat off this for a moment. <coughs> I remember this is maybe eight or ten years ago when Danny Elaidi, many of you know him, our campus pastor in Carpentria, he and his family are in Holland right now for a few weeks. That's where he's from. And, uh, and so uh, I had just been building this friendship with Danny back in these days. 
and he was working for a flower grower in Carpinteria and uh, wherever it is over there and uh, and mostly Dutch people a lot of Dutch folks in this in this in this company and, and so I heard through him that uh, he was going over to one of his boss's house or someone in the company to, to watch a soccer game. And I didn't know a whole lot about soccer at the time. I know a little bit more now. Still, I don't know a whole lot. But I thought this would be interesting because it was the European Cup. And Holland, the Netherlands, were playing somebody. And, and all the Dutch people, I don't know how many Dutch people there were in this setting, but... All the Dutch people were going to be gathering in that place to um, to watch the game. Anyway, I showed up to to watch this game. I thought it'd be a great cultural experience. I wasn't much of a fan of soccer, and I'm obviously not Dutch. But um, I, I showed up to this. It was like a Tuesday morning at like 10 o'clock in the morning, and I showed there were probably 30 Dutch people in this house, all speaking Dutch, and they all had their orange jerseys on, much like Greg and Joey did here today. <laughs> On the worship team, by the way. I like, I like the orange. Steph's got a little bit going. You, way to go. There was a lot of orange and a lot of Dutch. I think they were hoisting a few and just having a great time on this weekday morning. They, they were fully engaged. And I was at first somewhat hesitant. I mean, come on. I was a little hesitant. But, but what I found was this, that as I stepped into this room with indifference, neither for the Dutch or against I suddenly began to engage with these people around me. And the game got more and more intense. And it was tied, and it was a, it was a, it was a very tight game. And, and I began to feel the passion in the room. And I began to think that if I really wanted to, I could scream something out in Dutch <laughs> at, at the TV screen. I began to feel the emotion of the room, and it went into penalty kicks, and, and it got so intense, and we're like arm in arm. I, I was not hoisting any back, but I was really involved in the scene and, and this whole thing, and, and it went to penalty kicks, and this team scored one, and the Dutch did, and then not, and then yes, and then the Dutch ended up losing. And I'll never forget the, 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 the emotion in that room. And from such a high to such a low. And, and they all kind of left dejected from that house and went back to their jobs. And, and I, too, I mean, my, my whole day was ruined. <laughs> I had suddenly become a Dutchman myself. It's a silly way of saying it, perhaps, but my indifference, again, had, had left me vulnerable. In this case, not in, not in such a bad way, but it left me vulnerable to the influence of others. But here's the danger. I don't think it takes much explanation on this point. Our indifference to Jesus. Again, I'm not saying any of you are against him, but how often we might find ourselves not necessarily for him. And this indifference leaves us so vulnerable to the influence of the world around us. I mean, how often I've talked to followers of Jesus and, and I've begun to listen to them and listen to them talk about things like sexuality and money and relationships and the way they'll be talking and kind of feeding back to me. And I'll, I'll just be thinking in my head, where did you get this? That's not the biblical way. 
that's not the Jesus way. And usually I'll try to respond back to them and say that in some more gentle way, perhaps. But it's so obvious time after time after time. And you can think about areas in your own life where you're aware of it and other times when you're not so aware of it. It just spills out in the words that we say or in the things that we do or our choices that we have been influenced by the world around us. And my feeling is, is that one of the main reasons why we are so influenced is because we haven't taken a strong stand. We haven't taken a strong stand for what we will believe in. And we've left ourselves vulnerable. Peter Marshall was a great preacher. He was, a, uh, a, a, he was the chaplain in the Senate in the late 40s. And uh, Bob Skaggs is a big fan of Peter Marshall. If you want to know anything more about Peter Marshall, then uh, actually after Easter, Bob's going to be leading a, 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 a growth group here at church on Tuesday nights. He's going to be listening to the, some of the sermons of Peter Marshall and, uh, and, and just kind of engaging in conversation. But Peter Marshall, in, in his prayer to the Senate, I believe it was 1947, he was the Senate chaplain, and he came to, to lead in an opening prayer at the beginning session of, of the Senate for that year. He prayed uh, a prayer, and a portion of the prayer, he said this. Read this with me, would you? Give to us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for. Because unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything. And my fear is that this has already happened to so many, perhaps even some of us here this morning. We have failed to stand for Jesus fully. And so we have fallen for so much of the lies that the world is telling us and the influence of this world. And my fear is that it will continue that way until we decide to stand, to, to resist indifference and to not only be not against Jesus, but to be holy for him. Indifference makes us vulnerable to the influence of others. Here's the, here's the reality of the situation. While we may be indifferent to Jesus, Jesus was never indifferent towards us. I read from Isaiah 53 a little bit earlier. Let me just show you another portion of this. This was the prophet Isaiah writing about the suffering servant, the one who was to come, and listen to the description of what he saw, foresaw, as Jesus being and doing for us. Listen to this. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We may be indifferent to Jesus, but he was never indifferent to us. There was no question about the fact of whether or not he was for or against us. He was for us. He was not just not against us, he was completely for us, and he lived it out so beautifully and so powerfully in his suffering and in his death. And so the invitation for us this morning is, again, to resist indifference, to resist it, to, to instead live with a passion for him that, that can never equal but can approach his passion that he showed for us, standing firm, ready to take 
responsibility for our lives, shutting the doors that we've left open to disobedience, shut off from the influence of others, ultimately only open to him. Well, in the story that we've read, the verdict is, uh, is, is in from the, this trial of the centuries, right? I mean, there we, we read it there at the very beginning. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. That, that's the ultimate verdict of this trial. And, and ultimately, here's kind of a little bit of the twist on this. Ultimately, we're, we're thankful for that verdict, are we not? Because it was that verdict that would then open the door for Jesus to be crucified, for Jesus to die, be raised again so that we can know life. We're thankful for that. And, and we can even say to some extent here that, that, in, in, that in that regard, Pilate's indifference had a purpose. It, it even had a reason for, for being uh, that way. Um, we know about that trial, though, and we know about that verdict the question really is, is what will be the verdict in our own hearts and in our lives? Where our own indifference is not used for that kind of a purpose, but only pushes us away from the plan that God has in mind for our lives. What will be the verdict that, that we make even here today and that lives, is lived out in, in the days to come in our lives? Will we be indifferent? Will we allow ourselves to slide into these modes, or will we respond to all that Christ has done for us with passion, and with purpose, and with fresh commitment, and with fresh uh, saying yes, and standing for him firmly with our complete trust in him? Some of us need to maybe make that move today. You're not against him. I know that. Maybe there might be one or two here, but I, I think the majority of us, if not all of us, 100% here, are, are not against Jesus. We're here. I mean, that, that speaks to it. We're not against him. But, but are we for him in, in the fashion and in the manner that he would invite us to be today? Let's, uh, let's stand, shall we? I'm going to invite Jake to come. We're going to sing, and then I just want you to think about uh, some of those questions. And really maybe just do a, a moment of self-examination. Would you just do that? Just examine where you are on this spectrum. Against, for, indifferent. And begin to see and to pray and believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, He can come and create in you in a new and a fresh way a, a passion and a commitment to Jesus that begins to approach the passion and the commitment that he showed for you. Uh, let's sing. I'll come and pray for us. But just respond as the Spirit speaking to your heart today. There must be more than this. Oh, breath of God, come breathe within. Would you just uh, bow your heads, close your eyes. It could be that there are some here this morning, just keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Some here this morning that would just, just need to, just need to admit today that you've been indifferent to Jesus. You're not against him by any means. 
but you haven't necessarily been for him in the ways that he wants you to be. And as a result, you've found yourself not taking responsibility, perhaps, for your relationship with him. Perhaps you've found yourself leaving the, the door open for disobedience, for sin. Perhaps you're finding yourself more vulnerable than you know you ought to be to the influence of, of other people. Maybe some of you are like that. All, all uh, eyes are closed and heads are bowed. If that's you, and, and today you're saying, well, I, I don't want that to be me. I want to move in a new direction. I want, I want Jesus to have his way in me fully. I don't want to be indifferent anymore. And I don't only want to be not against him. I want to be fully for him. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up? All heads are bowed and eyes are closed. So you just need to say that in a new and fresh way. See some of your hands. Anybody else just need to lift your hand up and say, I've just been indifferent. And I don't want to do that anymore. Good. I see your hands. Anybody else? Anybody else just need to see that's me? I want to move in a new direction. Good. Several. I see your hands. See your hands. Father, more importantly, you see each heart today. Father, more importantly, you, you not only see our hearts, but you have the power and the ability to transform them. The presence of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. You have the ability, God, to, to take our hearts that, that though we don't want them to go this direction, so easily slide into this place of indifference. Riding the fence of indecision. Are we in or are we out? And, and to, to, to take us by the hand and to lead us to the place where, where we can stand with arms wide open and hearts lifted to you in awe of what you've done for us in Jesus. Where we can stand in the decisions that we make, in the lives that we lead. We can stand fully for you. And so for those who have raised their hands here this morning, and for those who, who perhaps are wrestling still a little bit with this issue in their hearts, and for those of us who, who, though we may be on the right track, recognize our proneness to slip into this when we rest on our own abilities, God, each of us here this morning cry out with all our hearts, Lord, Lord, come and do your work in us. Move us from a place of indifference. May the verdict that, that we proclaim with the lives that we lead simply say we will live for you with a passion and with a commitment that cannot equal but will approach the passion and the commitment that you showed for us, O oh Jesus, at the cross. And for all of that, we will give you thanks and we will give you praise. I want to invite those who maybe raised your hand this morning after we close, there'll be people here at the altar to pray. And if you'd like to just come pray and be blessed, be encouraged, have someone just speak truth and, and God's blessing over you, then please come and just gather around here. And if there's a 
a handful of folks, just, just wait and we'll pray. Just, just be patient, we'll pray. But uh, as we move from this place and, and on into Holy Week, on into the experience of what lies ahead, may we do so with, with glad and grateful hearts and expectant spirits, remembering what Jesus has done for us and looking forward to all that he will do again, both now and forevermore. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. God bless you. May you go in peace.